Good morning. I want to welcome everybody uh, to our gathering this morning. Those of you that are in the room, there's about 6,000 people here if you're online wondering. Uh, it's pretty amazing, the turnout. Um, they're laughing because there's not 6,000 people in the room. So uh, it is good to have those of you that feel comfortable being here in the room, and it's important for you to be here. It's great. Those of you that are online, thanks for tuning in, whether you're on the online campus or Facebook or YouTube. So great to have you with us. And those that are in the atrium, I always kind of look through the doors to see if anybody's out there when I say atrium. But uh, I always forget the atrium folks that sit out there. They're the smart ones. They like come in and they sit on the couch and they enjoy it. So it's good. Uh, been a bit of a crazy week, but an awful week in a lot of ways, uh, I'm sure you're aware of. And, uh, and we're, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I just wanted to make sure you know, if you're interested in my thoughts on what it means to respond as a peacemaker to some of the events that have happened in the Capitol and it's happening with our national administration, uh, I posted a little video on my Facebook uh, timeline, uh, just about, it was 15 or 20 minutes, just my kind of pastoral thoughts on that. And so if you want to hear what I have to say on it, uh, I understand if you don't, not a lot of people do, but if you do, for some strange reason, just find me on Facebook. And uh, if you give me a friend request, I don't think you have to be my friend to see it. That's how desperate I am for people to listen to me. Uh, but uh, you can see it there on my feed. Uh, if, you, if you do, for some reason, need to be a friend, just friend request me. I let I friend request everybody. I say yes, because <laughs> I don't have any real friends. So it, it makes me feel better about myself. So uh, you can do that. And I, I talked for about 20 minutes on that. I might mention it briefly throughout our talk today uh, a little bit, but uh, you can hear a little bit more uh, in detail specific to that, all right? So good. To, we're going to launch a series today called Listen, all right? And uh, listening is an interesting thing. How many of you have ever said to your children, listen? Anybody ever said that if you have kids, right? It doesn't matter if they're adult children. It doesn't matter if they're kids. You ever said that to your spouse? We say, listen. Because here's the deal. We know from like body language that sometimes people aren't listening, right? They're standing there and they're present, but they're not listening. Like right now, you're at home. You're, you're logged in. The screen's up, but you're probably not actually listening. There's something else going on, right? It could very well be happening. But we have these experiences with, with ourselves, right? We do it and other people do it to us, to just give us the clue that you're really not listening to me. So any of these sound familiar? You ever experienced the social media scroll? Like you're in a conversation with somebody and their phone's out and they're just kind of doing this? Uh-huh, yeah. yeah. They're listening, talking, and they're just kind of scrolling through Twitter, scrolling through Facebook, see what's going on. And uh, they're there. They're not talking. You're talking. They're making eye contact every now and then. But uh, you know they're really not listening. Or have you ever experienced the other world gazer, right? That person who you're having a conversation with and you're deep into it and then you look at them and they're just like, you can just tell. They're, they're giving you the like 20 yard stare, like staring right through you. They're off to the side. You're like, are you with me? Hello, you know? Maybe you do that, somebody starts talking and honestly, you just really don't care what they have to say. So you're thinking about what's for dinner or whatever it might be. And they have that gaze out there. There's that one that's my favorite uh, type of person and that is the uh, go find another fool. 
person. You ever talked with this person that uh, they ask your opinion and you give them really good wisdom and uh, you give them the same wisdom that 99 other people gave them about some decision they want to make in their life that is so clearly dumb. It's just dumb. There's no other word for it. You're like, you're not a dumb person, but if you do enough of these things, you might be a dumb person, right? You could say that. Like, you know it. This is, if you do this, you're going to end up hurt, pain, whatever it might be. Like, don't do it. And 99 people have told them the same advice, but then they go find the one other fool who will tell them what they want to hear and they'll listen to that, right? You ever found that? They don't listen to you. They hear what you have to say, but then they just go look for somebody to validate their own opinion. Nobody's ever done that. I know nobody tuning in in the atrium or here in the, you've, you've never done that yourselves, right? Like you have the credit to show it, right? You have the report. There's something, we've all been there, right? Or maybe you've experienced the too angry to listen person, right? You try to have a conversation about something that's going on. Maybe this is, this is usually found in deep places of intimacy where you really have to confront a reality. You have to confront something that's going on in your life or in your relationship. And that person just gets so angry that they can't listen. I've been there. I've been so, I just know it. I need a timeout. I can't hear. I can't listen. Now, all these things tell me something that I probably could have led with, and that is that we have a listening problem. <laughs> like in our world, in our lives, we have a listening problem. You can't look at the events that are taking place in the world, in our nation, in the Capitol, on Facebook. You can't pause and just see what's going on and not go, we have a listening problem. We don't actually hear one another. We don't actually pay attention. And I think ultimately why we have a listening problem is because we as people have a humility problem. I think we come to this space, we come to our relationships, we come to our conversations, we come to, to all these different circumstances in life with this presupposition that I really don't need to know what you have to say. I'm good. Like, you couldn't possibly have anything to offer my life on the subject. I've listened to my newscast that I like to listen to. I've read my blogs. I, I know I'm informed. And we can't imagine that, that we might be wrong. We can't imagine that there might be something about, even the way I think about God or religion or faith, uh, that you could never offer me anything. I, I like to think about this in terms of religion, right? Religion's fascinating. Even let's just take one religion, which is Christianity, right? Which is a religion. And Christianity has been around, let's say, under the title Christianity for close to 2,000 years. And it's been on every continent now in the world. And we have had hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people write about Christianity and about faith. Yet somehow we have this belief that my narrow way in which I grew up and the things that I've been taught about faith and the Bible and God, like that's it, that's all I need, right? We just get so closed off. There's a lack of humility, a lack of mystery, a lack of this expectation that someone's life could offer me truth in any arena, whatever it might be. I think we have that humility. And because we have a humility problem, we end up having an understanding problem because we don't actually listen to understand people. Since they don't have anything to offer us, what's the point? If my goal is to just be right, if my goal is to just convince you that you're wrong, we don't actually engage in listening, in conversation, in relationships for the ultimate purpose of actually understanding. And at the end of the day, the real tension exists and this explodes because what we don't understand, we fear. And if we can't get to a place of understanding, we just fear something and whatever we fear will eventually become an enemy. 
You think about that in your life. I think about it in my life. What I don't understand, I start to get afraid of. And what I'm afraid of, I push and keep away from me. And, and the more I do that, the more I enter into the echo chamber. Maybe you've heard that phrase, the echo chamber. It's the, the, the like bubble that we put ourselves in where we only listen and we only hear opinions and thoughts and facts that validate what we already know to be true. And we just surround ourselves with it. And the echo chamber is a space of duality. There's me and there's them. There's people that support uh, the president and there's people that don't support the president. There's people that are for abortion. There's people that are against abortion. There's people that are for gay rights. There's people that are against gay rights. It's a very dualistic understanding of the world. Everything is black and white in the echo chamber. We have lots of echo chambers and we have fun echo chambers of sports. My team is the best team and nobody will ever tell me any otherwise. We have political echo chambers. We have news echo chambers. We get in and we listen and we only hear and we only read what we want. And the problem in the echo chamber is this. The echo chamber is where polarity exists. It's what pushes us apart. It's how we become so polarized is because we function and we exist within our own echo chambers. It is very, very strange to find a person who will intentionally make sure that their social media feed, that their diet of news, that the, the books that they read, the way they think about faith has a more uh, holistic approach to it. It's very unusual for us to do that because we are afraid of what we don't know. Now, there was a, a great story in the Bible where we can get some wisdom because we see a king who got caught up in the echo chamber. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there are two sets of books that give us the history of the kings of Israel. One's called First and Second Kings. You know, that's a pretty, you know, that's a good one. You know what that one's about. The other one is called First and Second Chronicles. And they're actually written in different time periods and they give us different perspectives on the nation of Israel and actually the split of the nation. And I wanna read about one king and one pivotal moment in the nation of Israel that would set the nation of Israel on a course, on a trajectory for uh, hundreds of years of turmoil and tension and pain because a king got caught up in the echo chamber, unwilling to look beyond their own fears, his own hurt, his own anxiety. And so there's some strange names in this story. As you can imagine, this literature was written 2000, over 2000 years ago and they had weird names back then, not names like Ryan, perfectly normal name. But we have names like Rehoboam and Jeroboam and Ahijah. These are the kind of strange names. If you're new to Bible study, it's no wonder why you don't wanna read the Bible. By the way, if you are reading the Bible and you come to a name you can't understand, you know what I do? I just go that guy. I just say that guy. Oh, that guy went to that place and just fill that in. It's a lot easier than trying to figure out their names, all right? So we're gonna pick up this story. And you have to know that this literature takes place in a time that's very, very violent. And we have been a people trying to understand and deal with violence since we started walking around on this planet. And a lot of times we take violence and we attribute it to God. That's how we justify it. And the people who wrote the Bible are of no exception. They're caught in the same trap that we are. And so as we read the Old Testament, as we read some of these ancient pieces of writing, we have to always understand what's going on in the culture and, and how we always perceive and create God in our image, no matter what. And that's the struggle, to try and discern and understand this God of the universe, this creator behind all things. And so as we read this literature, we'll oftentimes find things that should be shocking to us. 
Because we as humanity have evolved. Our understanding of God has changed. We live in a post-Jesus walking around world. And so we interpret our events, we interpret our lives differently than we would have, say, prior to Jesus. When we understand that God is this perfect image of Jesus who created no victims, who taught us about love and forgiveness and mercy, we can actually look and see where we got it wrong throughout history. So as we read this, it's always good to just kind of remember that. All right, so here we go. So one thing you need to know is that uh, the nation of Israel was made up of 12 tribes, 12 kind of communities. And these 12 communities had their own leaders, their own representation. They were very ethnically oriented towards one another, uh, kind of a, a faction of sorts. So that's what you should know about. We're gonna pick up the story after, at the time after Solomon has died. Solomon was King David's son. Solomon had built the, this grand temple uh, for God. Uh, he had done it through the recruitment and kind of forced labor of the Israelite people. Uh, Jerusalem was the capital. It was in the southern part of this kingdom. And there were a whole lot of people that didn't appreciate what Solomon had done because Solomon had put a whole lot of, of slavery really into place, forcing the people of Israel to build this temple. It was, they, were, it was, they were just forced into it. So, so what has happened is there was a revolt that happened. Uh, Solomon, for whatever reasons, depending upon who you read and what you look at, like Solomon's reign was coming to an end and there was a guy named Jeroboam who rebelled against him. He ended up having to flee to Egypt. He was a servant of Solomon. And so uh, you've got this guy who's trying to overthrow Solomon. Solomon has a son named Rehoboam who would be the successor to the king, to the dynasty. All right, so there's your history lesson for the day. So we'll pick up the story. Solomon is dead. Rehoboam, his son, is getting ready to be coronated as king. And so it says that Rehoboam went to Shechem, which was in the northern part of, Jeru of uh, Israel, it says, where all Israel had come to make him king. Now, this book is written after the fact. This isn't written in real time. So this book is, this story is written hundreds of years after it happened. And so when it says where Israel had come to make him king, the, the word Israel here refers to 10 of the 12 tribes. Because what this story is telling us is how the 10 tribes became one nation and the two tribes became another nation. It's giving us the roots of a civil war that would take place for hundreds of years within the people of God. So it says they, they went up to Shechem and uh, this happened when Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had heard about it. He was still in Egypt, right? Because he had led a rebellion against Solomon, tried to overtake the throne. So he's down in Egypt and he was an Israelite from the northern part. Now it says that he had fled from uh, King Solomon and remained in Egypt and they sent for him. Then Jeroboam and the whole assembly of Israel came. And this is what they said to the would-be king Rehoboam. Your father put a heavy yoke on us. If you now lighten the harsh servitude and the heavy yoke your father imposed on us, we will be your servants. Okay, so, so uh, in this moment, uh, Rehoboam is kind of faced with a choice and he makes a pretty wise decision. He says, okay, come back to me in three days. And so the people were raised. So he's like, let me just think about it for three days. And we see that Rehoboam is at a turning point in his life. He's at this moment, he's got a big decision to make and he actually decides, I'm gonna take some time and think about it, Right? They say, make it easier on us. Don't continue to put us into forced labor. Don't treat us the way your father treated us and we'll be with you. We'll honor you as king. So King Rehoboam goes and he asks advice of the elders who had been in his father Solomon's service while he was alive. Now remember, these are the people 
who would have advised Solomon, who would have watched Solomon mistreat people, who would have watched Solomon have a thousand wives or 700 wives, 300 concubines. I can't even wrap my head around that one. Right, they watched Solomon worship all these other gods. They watched all this fall. They watched the people and how uh, they did not respond well to Solomon's leadership. So he, they asked them, this young son, this young man comes to these elders and says, what should we do? Advise me how to answer these people. Now, here's what these folks say. After they've watched all the mistakes that Solomon have made, they say, listen, if today you become the servant of this people and you serve them, Give them a favorable answer. They will be your servants forever. In other words, don't do what your father did. (laughs) We've seen the mistakes. We've learned from them. If you will serve them instead of having them serve you, if you will exist for their welfare, if you will lighten the burden, give them a favorable answer, they will be with you. They'll make you king. It will be wonderful. But Rehoboam ignores them, it says. It says he ignores the advice that he had given him. And he goes and he asks the young men who had grown up with him and were in his service. Right, so he takes this voice of people who've experienced all of this for many years, ignores them, and he goes and finds the young men that are around him and just kind of tells us that Rehoboam doesn't really want the truth of the people. He just wants somebody to justify his opinion, right? This is that foolish person who's like, I just got to find somebody who will make my way of thinking feel right. He's really not interested in the people's truth and their experiences and their story and their lives. He's interested in finding someone that will say exactly what he wants to hear. And so he goes and these young men, what do they say to him? Exactly what he wants to hear. They say, what do you advise me? They says, he says, they ask me, should I lighten the yoke that my father imposed on them? What do you think? What should I do? And the young men who had grown up with him, right? who they were just alongside, they knew where their future meal ticket was coming from. (laughs) They had grown up with him and they said, listen, your father, you tell him this, your father made our yoke heavy. You lighten it for us. Well, here's what you got to say to him. Tell him that your little finger is thicker than your father's loins. Say, my father put a heavy yoke on you, but I will make it heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. This is the echo chamber, right? Let's find the people that will just validate what I know to be true. Because at the end of the day, Rehoboam was afraid. He was afraid of this group that he didn't know. He was afraid of the Northern tribes. He was afraid of losing them. And the only thing he had ever seen was violence. The only thing that he had ever seen was whips and chains. And he saw it from a distance. So it says that Jeroboam and all the people, they gathered back three days later. And just as the king had said, they all came back. And it it says this, ignoring the advice of the elders, right? Ignoring that wisdom that came that was contrary to what he thought, the king gave the people a harsh answer. And he spoke to them as the young men had advised. He said, my father made your yoke heavy, but I'll make it heavier. My father beat you with whips, but I will beat you with scorpions. And see, what we have happening here is Rehoboam didn't honor the divinity in his people, He didn't honor the nature of God that was inside of all of these people that he didn't understand. He didn't know their customs. He didn't know their ways. Even though they were all part of the same nation, they were different tribes. They were from a different area. He had seen a rebellion that had kind of come out of someone who was kind of from the north. Genesis chapter one teaches us that God created all of humanity in God's image, male and female, God created them that every person on this planet is made in the image of God, that the divine sits inside of every one of us. 
And the way in which that Rehoboam was willing to treat all of these people in the same way his father had, basically denied the dignity of the divinity in them, was unwilling to see and honor that, but to allow fear to take over. So the king, it says, did not listen to the people. Didn't listen to the people. For this turn of events was from the Lord. Now here's where it gets interesting. We always have to remember this was a time period and there was lots of teaching to understand that everything that happened, the gods were in charge of, everything. If you were sick, it was because the gods wanted you sick. Now we know that's not true anymore. But so interpretation of events always took place through this lens and we can't hold that against the writers of the Bible. It gives us insight and caution, and cautions us with how we interpret things. Right, we would say, well, we're not sick because we sin. We might have sickness because there's brokenness in our world, but it's not, oh, I, I, I went out and told a lie and now I have COVID, right? That's not how this works. But that would have been the prevailing belief in this primitive society. But it gives us a hint, we should be cautious. But here's what's so fascinating, right? It says that this fulfilled the word of the Lord that had been spoken through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Now, if you go back one chapter in 1 Kings, you hear about this encounter. But here's what I would just say, right? Like, nobody was surprised that if Rehoboam was going to go down this road of fear and violence, it would all come to a head. Like, nobody was surprised by that. Nobody was surprised that Rehoboam was going to rule by fear and violence. That was just the way it was. And the voice of the prophet says, this can't happen. If this happens, Jeroboam, you are going to get 10 of the kingdoms. You're gonna get 10 of the tribes, excuse me. So first Kings goes on, it says, when all the Israel, when all of Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, wouldn't hear them, wouldn't understand them, the people answered the king, what share have we in David? We have no heritage in the son of Jesse. In other words, what do we have to do with the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. These were the two Southern tribes. What do we have to do with you? What share do we have with David? Who is David to us? And in this moment, the split happens. And, and they say, to your tents, Israel, look to your own house. Look to your own house, David, take care of it. You want something built? Good luck, go for it, it's all on you. You wanna rule? Go ahead and rule the people that live in Judah and the people that live in Benjamin, this region, but you'll have nothing to do with us. And so they left and only the Israelite people that lived in Judah and Jerusalem submitted to the rule of Rehoboam, it says. So King Rehoboam then, after all of this, right? He doesn't listen, doesn't recognize. They don't want to have anything to do with him. After it all happens, he sends out this guy named Adoram. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor, going out and telling people, you've got to come and work in the king's service. You've got to come and do what the king says, no matter what. You don't have a choice. You've got to leave your family. You've got to come and you're going to build the temple. You're going to do whatever the king says. That's what was happening. So he, in his blindness, still sends this guy up to the northern kingdoms to try and force people into labor, into servitude. But all Israel does what? They respond to violence with violence. They stoned him to death. But King Roam then managed to mount his chariot and flee. <laughs> completely blind, completely deaf to the reality of what's going on. What we see in this and what we see all throughout history is that violence just gives birth to violence. 
It doesn't matter when we say, well, I'm fighting for justice. If we do it in a violent way and create unjust and injustice in someone else's life, it will just breed more and more and more violence. Violence always gives birth to violence. It's the beauty of why Jesus came and what Jesus shows us. Jesus responds to violence by absorbing it and creates no victims and dies on a cross, falsely accused, to show us a path of nonviolence, that there is no way to end violence with violence. And so we see the king having to flee in shame. Proverbs 18, 13, our anchor verse, the one I would encourage everybody to memorize. If you're at home, if you're in the room, write a little note down, circle this, stick it on your mirror, put it somewhere, memorize this proverb. It says, whoever answers before listening, theirs is folly and shame. Whoever answers before listening, theirs is folly and shame. And when we read this story and we really consider and we think about Rehoboam, we recognize that he answered the people without actually listening. He didn't understand why they were saying it. He didn't understand their experiences. He didn't understand their truth. He didn't understand the world as they saw it. He just simply saw it through his lens of fear and control. And we do this all the time. Why? Because we have what the Bible talks about as ears to hear, but we don't hear. The prophet Ezekiel uh, gets this message, this word, this inclination, this thought from God and says, son of man, you live in the midst of a rebellious house. They have eyes to see, but they don't see. And they have ears to hear, but do not hear. What we see in Rehoboam is that what we see in a lot of us that we think that when we allow people to speak, when we allow people to use their voice, that somehow that means we've listened, but allowing people to speak is not the same thing as listening. Hearing what someone says and not considering it, not taking the time to step in and understand a person's life, understand their perspective, understand their world, hear their experiences as they happen to them, as they are understood by that person. That's what it means to really listen. If we don't understand a person, if we can't understand or imagine why a person would believe what they believe, hold true what they hold true, then we haven't actually listened. So for you and I, for those of you that are considering this life of faith, this life of peacemaking, what does this mean for your everyday normal life? What does it mean? How do we get these ears to hear? How do we not fall into the same trap that just continues the violence, violence in our relationships, violence in our nation? How do we do that? Well, I think there are three things that can help us. I think to have ears to hear, we have to have a curious heart. The truth is some of our hearts are not very curious at all. We just don't care to understand. But we need to have a heart, like the emotion and this deep desire to really understand. I, I was having this thought as, as I was processing through the, the, the events that have happened this past week. And I said, how can people believe what they believe? We have two sets of facts and truths that are going out there, one of which to me seems very apparent that there's no validation for, but for some, there is deep validation. What is that? Like, how is that happening? What goes on that we can have this happen, that there can be two truths of the matter, that we can actually ignore very reputable people and, and come up with a completely different reality than another person? Like, why is that? I think that's part of having a curious heart to actually take the time to explore that question. How could my spouse believe this? 
How could they have encountered and had this experience? I had the same conversation with them. I, I heard the same thing, but they have experienced it completely differently. Why is that? Why are my children experienced? Why does my coworker experience? What is that all about? So we have to have this curious heart. If we want ears to truly hear, our heart has to be curious enough and value that person enough to say, I need to understand why that is. Why is that? Ears to hear need a quiet tongue, secondly. <laughs> and I say the word tongue, uh, tongue in cheek. <laughs> because I don't mean just simply being quiet because we know that being quiet is not listening, but you have to shut your like silent, like your mental tongue down as well. <laughs> like when people are talking and in your head and in my head, all I'm doing is formulating how to rebut that nonsense. Like I'm talking in my head, like the voice is speaking. I have to learn to shut that down, to truly be present to hear what's being said, to be able to honor the voice of another, be able to repeat back, to truly understand them, which means not just closing my mouth, but quieting the tongue that goes on and on and on and on and on, that doesn't let people finish sentences in my head. And then thirdly, I think one of the most important things we have to do as people of faith, if we're going to truly have ears to hear is we need to develop what we'll call a contemplative mind a contemplative mind. Now, some people get weirded out by the word contemplation. They think of contemplation as meditation, of just being quiet and closing your eyes and saying, um, or whatever. But I wanna use contemplative and the idea of contemplation in a pretty kind of spiritually technical sense. Like a contemplative mind is a mind that does not see this world in black and white. A contemplative mind doesn't see this world as divided up as enemies and friends. A contemplative mind sees this world as Jesus saw this world. A contemplative mind doesn't live in a dualistic right and wrong, this and that, this or that mentality. It's a both and existence. Father Richard Rohr, a Franciscan uh, priest, says this about contemplative practice and contemplation. He says that this is the way we let go of our usual self-focused way of thinking and doing things so that our compassionate, connected, and creative self can emerge. I don't know about you, but the usual self-focused way of thinking and doing things, that resonates with me, right? When I, when I go through this like decision-making process, when I'm getting ready to say something, I'm always thinking about it through a self-focused way. What's good for me? But what I have to do is give that up and I have to enter into a new way of seeing the world, a new way of thinking that allows compassion and mercy, the understanding that I am connected to all people, to all living things, to all of creation, that I am connected through this beautiful thing called faith, through this living word that existed and created all things. This creative force that has created such diversity in the world, that can emerge. The Bible word for this, by the way, is the transformed mind or the mind of Christ. It's our ability to perceive and experience and honor God in all people. So we have the, lots of admonitions throughout the New Testament that we ought to have the mind of Christ. That is that our mind, the little voice inside our head should sound like the little voice that was inside Jesus's head. The mind of the living word, to see this world as God sees, to experience people as God experiences with grace, to be transformed by the renewing of our mind every day so that we could know God's will in this world, how we ought to participate in the love and care of all of God's people. This transformed mind. 
And this transformed mind teaches us something that I learned in college, that all truth is God's truth. That no matter where I find it, no matter what it exists, if it's true, it's God. That God is present in it. And whether I learn it from an agnostic or an atheist or a Hindu or a Muslim, whether I learn it from my seven-year-old or my 17-year-old or my 27-year-old, if it is true, then it's God's truth. And there's a word for this idea in terms of religion. It's called the perennial tradition. And it's something we kind of hold dear around here. You might not know it because you've never heard that language, but we hold this idea that there is big T truth that exists out there in the world. And where we find it, we should praise it and champion it. And one of these big T truths is that God is present in all things. It's, we find this in all types of religions. All types of the great, all of the great world religions understand this idea that God is present in all things. Hinduism has this word, the Hindus have this word called namaste. Anybody ever heard this phrase, namaste, kind of a traditional greeting in Hindu? If you're a yoga practitioner, they, uh, I hear this, I've never done yoga. Uh, they end yoga with that. They say namaste, right? It's like an ending greeting. But here's the thing, like, Namaste comes from this belief within Hinduism that we share. Christianity and Hinduism shares this perennial belief that God is completely transcendent, yet completely imminent. It's kind of an interesting thing. Transcendent means that God exists outside of all things, that it's not dependent upon anything at all, that God loved the creative force behind all things that was made manifest in Christ, in Jesus, what we would say, this living Christ made manifest in Jesus from a Christian tradition, that it, there's something about God that is completely transcendent, but yet we also believe that God is completely imminent, that we're invited to consider and think about God in these metaphors like father or mother. We're invited to consider God as a lover of our souls, that, that type of imminent presence. Colossians 1:17 puts it all together in this one little sentence. It says, he, the Christ, the living Christ, the logos, the word, is before all things, and in the word, in him, all things hold together, right? In this one little sentence, we have this picture. And so when you take this idea of namaste that is within the Hindu faith, and you take it with this understanding that we hold and so many traditions hold that God is present in all things and active in all things, the spiritual meaning of this phrase namaste is really powerful. It says, the divine in me respectfully recognizes the divine in you. It's really what it means from a spiritual perspective. And I just have this sense that the world would be a better place if every time we encountered someone, the first greeting that I had was, before I engage with you, before I start a conversation, before I decide to go to war with you, before I decide that you're worthy of killing, the divine in me respectfully recognizes the divine in you. Could you imagine if that was the way we thought about people, what the world would look like? There's a, I mean, we, we could go off forever on this. I have my own kind of like frustrations, like I think all people do with this, this idea of war. And I say this all the time. I wonder what our world would be like today if at the very first war that ever happened, the, the conquering nation, the, the only appropriate thing with war, and that was to grieve, to grieve death. And not just the death of their people, but the death of all people, because all people are created in the image of God. Like what would have happened in the history of our nation if at the very first war that we ever encountered, we didn't just create memorials and monuments for Americans that died, but we created memorials and monuments for every human being that died, for every orphan that was created in this world, for every person that was widowed because of violence and death and destruction. Where would we be as people? Where would we be in the world? 
And that means we have to get beyond our nationalistic understanding that somehow, because I have a social security card, my life is more valuable than yours. This is the call of faith of honoring, this is what it means to honor another person and it's difficult and it's hard and it doesn't make any sense because the kingdom of God exists outside of our categories of this world. And it's only through a transformed mind that we grab it. And so part of listening as we begin is this big tagline of recognizing if the light of the world is in all people, we have to honor that enough to pause and value and understand. And this will make the world a better place. It can't make it any worse. <laughs> because what happens is all of a sudden when we genuinely listen, that becomes a teacher. Genuine listening becomes a professor in our lives, teaching us how to walk humbly with God. Not arrogantly walk ahead of God, but to understand that I have to walk in humility with this God that says, there is no such thing as an enemy in flesh and blood. Put your head around that one. That the real enemies exist under the surface. They're called principalities of darkness, fear, greed, lust, control, power. All of these things, those are the real enemies that we come together as. But this person is just a slave to those things. And a, and a follower of Jesus is no longer a slave to sin, we think for some bizarre reason that that means we're no longer a slave to having lustful thoughts about person of the opposite sex or saying curse words. No, we're no longer a slave to darkness, to power, control, lust, greed, but we're now a slave to Christ, which means I recognize and see Christ in all things. And people ask me this all the time, well, Ryan, how do we depolarize? What do you think? I don't know why some people ask me this. I'm like, how? I'm not I'm completely unqualified to answer that question. Like, how do we become as a nation back to a place of depolarization. Like, I think the only way that we do this is through genuine listening. And I don't think that genuine listening can take place until we recognize that we're all living under the same roof. Like the whole world. The Pope tweeted out something this past week. I wish I had it. I, I'll maybe have it for the next service. I read it earlier today. That's like, until we recognize that all of humanity is basically living in the same house, we're never gonna get there, right? I mean, it's just, he said it far more eloquently and papal than I ever will, but, right? Like, until we get there, but you cannot get there. You, it will never happen, will never happen if we exist in the systems and structures of this world where we think that marching on the Capitol is somehow gonna change anything. That whoever, I think it's important who sits in power, I really do. But when we think that somehow this is the answer, it, it, we're all held culpable for this reality that we're in. And so only when we truly listen, when we be transformed by God's spirit, where we start to honor that God is in all people, regardless of creed, regardless of race, religion, sexuality, if we start there, that will transform us. So as we wrap up this morning, you're sitting at home, you're sitting in the atrium, you managed to get through my little tirade on war. It matters. It matters that we make little Jeeps that look like war and we play with them as little kids. The weapons that kill people, these things that kill, that we, that we turn these things into toys. I'm not some like, Prude. I'm just thinking it matters. I've come to a space in my life that it matters 
How could it not matter? How does it not dehumanize when we play with the things that kill people that God made? How does it not matter? How do we, how do we relegate Christianity to about what I look at on my computer or, or how, I, how I think or the words that I say when I'm on the construction site and not to the fact that, that we play games that, 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 that turn death into something that is not worth grieving or sacred. It matters. It's a peculiar thing to be this follower of Jesus. And unfortunately, it hasn't become that. So what's God inviting you into today? Here's the thing. If you're here, maybe this is your first time, second time, and you've had a really bad experience with faith and religion, and you find yourself in one of these categories of spiritually disconnected, dissatisfied, disenfranchised, that you haven't wanted to give up on God and you don't believe that God has given up on you, but you have certainly given up on the idea of faith, a community of faith because of pain or hurt or lack of uh, actual getting anything accomplished that changes the world. Here's what I would say, God, I hope you hear God inviting you to trust that you're in a safe place, that this group of people is a safe place, that the leaders of this group of people work very hard to create a safe place where you will be listened, for understanding, that your story is of value, that your truth matters, that we're here to listen, to, to understand, not convince. Okay, I might wanna convince you about the problems of war, but you know. And maybe you're kind of brand new to peacemaking, right? This idea that my faith is more than going to church. And you're kind of brand new to this whole thing of like what I do with my time and my talent and my treasure, it matters. Like a first step in this, I think listening to people that are really hard to listen to is to develop compassion. Let your compassion itself come out by just praying for them. Pray for your enemies. Like you see them and you understand them as your enemies. I get that. I'm not here to tell you anything otherwise. I think God works in our lives. So you see them as your enemy, pray for them. Jesus said, pray for your enemies. He didn't say pray for the people you think are your enemies, even though they're not really your enemies. I mean, that would come later on. Just the starting point is pray for your enemies. We'll just leave them as enemies, but pray for them. That's the call. But here's the thing. If you're in deep into this journey, right? Like you know it, like you know all the books of the Bible by heart. Like you memorize them all. I don't even know if I could do that anymore. Like you've done all the 101 and 201s and 301s and 401s that are out there. And you've led the Bible studies and you've done all the stuff and you've got all the Bible knowledge and you know exactly who's going to heaven and you know exactly who's going to hell and you, you just have it all down. Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you wanna be transformed, like you know enough to know like, oh, that's not really my enemy. They're just, I perceive them as my enemy. Here's what I wanna encourage you to do. This is like the graduate level stuff. <laughs> Go sit down with that person and, and sit down for understanding. Make it the goal of your encounter with them is purely to understand sympathetically their point of view. Don't accept it as truth. Don't, I'm not saying change your mind or your heart, but saying, sit down and say, help me understand. Help me understand, whatever it might be whether it's political, whether it's economics, whether it's music, how could you possibly like that band? Maybe start small. But when you sense that, when you sense the tension, say that the only way that I can actually honor you is to recognize that it's, it's Christ in me, recognizing Christ in you. 
I can't, because spirit loves spirit. And so there's a lot about you that I don't understand. And because I don't understand you, I am afraid of that. And I get angry at that. And I don't want to be that person. So could we sit down and could you just help me understand you, your experiences, that person who's different? These are things that will transform us, I believe deeply. They're not easy, but they will transform us and they will make the world a better place. Let me pray for you and then we'll get you out of here. Pray that God will bless you, keep you, that a spirit of listening would overwhelm you. That this great mystery that Christ is in you, the hope of glory, is in all people as the hope of glory. And that you would walk out of here, that you would log off this morning, that you would enter into your everyday normal lives knowing that Christ in you is desiring to recognize Christ in the other. That you may be given eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart that is curious, a tongue that is quiet, a mind that is contemplative. And may the world come alive. May you have the courage to pray for your enemy. May you have the courage to trust that you're in a safe place. And may you have the courage to sit at a table with your enemy for peace. And I pray that this week would be filled with surprises and encounters with love and grace and mercy that you would never have expected and that your words and your actions that your life itself would be an experience of grace and mercy and compassion for someone in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in that Zoom meeting that you have this week, in those children that you care for, at the construction site of the home you're building. As you prepare and plan in your everyday life, may your heart be bent towards justice and mercy and humility, and may you experience the divine in such a true way we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen.